True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Restrictions gradually lifted here, so I hope we don't have a second wave. So make sure you wash your bloody hands and keep your distance. And I just can't wait to fly out of here to see Kate again, for fuck's sake. I just get married, and now we're 5,000 miles apart, and no flights out of the country, none into Thailand either. But Thailand are doing all right on their numbers. Australia are doing all right on their numbers. Let's get a little travel bubble open there we hope anyway geez that siren i don't know i'm sure you heard it in the background well this week you might get a feeling of deja vu and i don't blame you because this week's episode is another one of those cases where an innocent victim's life is taken by a maggot grub for no reason totally unprovoked and it would devastate the family and friends and shock the community. It's just as heartbreaking as the last few cases I've covered. Anita Cobby, Kim Barry, Sandra Hoare, Laurel Macon, Shanda Scherer and even Janine Balding and Lee Lee. So tonight I reference the bluemountaingazette.com.au, the Sydney Morning Herald, news.com.au And court records. Now, I will be reading extensively from these. And as usual, I have edited them for clarity and flow. And this one will be a little bit longer than my previous episodes because there is so much detail in these records that you do need to hear. So this case takes place in a small town called Leeton, which is a town located in the Riverina region of southern New South Wales, Australia, and the population's about 8,600 people. It's about a six-hour drive west of Sydney, but it's actually closer to Melbourne. It's about five hours' drive north of Melbourne in what's called the MIA, or Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area. We went to this area as a school excursion, the MIA excursion. It's here that 26-year-old Stephanie Claire Scott worked as a teacher at the local school. She was born 14th of October 1988 in Canawindra to Bob and Marilyn Scott. She had four siblings, Gordon, Robin, Kim and Stuart. Stephanie was vice-captain of the Canawindra High School and worked at the local swimming pool when she was younger. Stephanie studied at the Charles Sturt University in Wagga, then went on to become the English and drama teacher at Leeton High School. She'd worked there for three, for three years and was extremely well liked by students and teachers. Thursday the 2nd of April 2015 was the last day of school term before the Easter school holidays, and it was Stephanie's last day at work before her wedding. Now, staff held a party for her on that day. She was due to be married to Aaron Leeson Woolley on the 11th of April 2015. 
On Good Friday, the 3rd of April, Aaron and Stephanie had a party at Canawindra that they were invited to. But as the wedding was only days away, well, it was the next week, Stephanie decided not to go. She decided instead to spend the Easter long weekend taking care of various arrangements, including going to Griffith for shopping and collecting travel tickets for the honeymoon. She also wanted to drop into the school to make sure that everything was ready for the teacher that was going to fill in for her while she was away on her honeymoon. At 12.30pm, Aaron kissed Stephanie goodbye and told her that he loved her. He was due to return on Easter Sunday. Now they maintained contact over the weekend with text and phone calls and Aaron made dinner reservations for them on the Sunday night. Aaron sent Stephanie a text on the Sunday but didn't receive a reply. She was not there when he returned home at about 7.20pm and further text messages from Aaron went unanswered. He believed that she may have stayed away for the night due to her feeling anxious about the wedding organisation and him not having been there over the weekend. He didn't sleep at all that night. Now, further attempts by Aaron to locate Stephanie the next morning were unsuccessful. He reported her missing at Leeton Police Station. Inquiries revealed that Stephanie's mobile phone was uncontactable. There'd been no activity on a bank account since her shopping on Saturday and there was also no activity on her social media accounts. Her red Mazda 2 was also missing. Aaron drove around everywhere looking for her. He thought maybe she'd had an accident in her car and this is the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area. So there's plenty of wide canals in which she may have lost control and slid into. It had happened quite often before. Now, there were initial concerns that Stephanie may have got cold feet, you know, regarding the wedding, but there was absolutely no indication of this being the case from her friends or family or from her text activity. Relatives and friends posted appeals on social media, which generated a significant amount of activity across the country. Now, police knew that she'd been at the school on the Sunday preparing lessons for the teacher that was going to fill in for her, and they'd heard that 24-year-old Vincent Stanford's car had been seen there that day. Now, Vincent was a twin. He was born in Australia, but his family moved to Holland when he was about three years old. His father returned to Australia after six months, and then there was no further contact with him. Vincent and his brothers were raised by their mother. He and his mother and older brother Luke returned to Australia in early 2014 and took up residence in Maiden Avenue, Leeton. His twin brother Marcus had returned a year or two earlier and he lived in South Australia. Now Vincent didn't take drugs or drink booze, but there were a couple of troubling incidents when he was at school in the Netherlands. He had attended a behaviour school in 2001 and 2002 because of his unruly behaviour, limited social skills, limited friendships and oppositional behaviour. 
An incident in 2003 at another school when he was aged 12 involved him being in a schoolyard without authorization and refusing to leave. He unexpectedly grabbed the school principal by the throat with both hands and with such force that she had difficulty breathing. Now, he was expelled over that. A month prior to this, he had been involved in a fight with another student where he grabbed him by the throat. Now, he was sent to an adolescent psychiatric centre for behavioural problems and violent incidents. He then enrolled in a smaller school for students with special needs and remained there until the age of 16. Now, after leaving school, Vincent applied to study information technology at a college and to join the army, but was rejected in both cases. He worked as a cleaner for the same company for five years and then worked in a sawmill. Now, Vincent thought that his boss at his cleaning job in the Netherlands was disorganised, did not care about the standard of his workers, which really annoyed him. Vincent said that he took pride in his work performance and he said that he had serious thoughts of violence towards his boss on a few occasions and knew it was time to leave. When Vincent, his mum and brother moved back to Australia, they settled in Leeton and he got a job as a cleaner a couple of months after moving there. He had no friends or social contacts. He said that being in the company of other people was stressful and he disliked it. He said that he was relatively comfortable in his cleaning job, working before and after hours, and generally alone, because there was little need or opportunity for social interaction. His employment as a casual cleaner, well, this meant he worked at a variety of locations, including a number of schools and other educational facilities, and that included Leeton High School. On the 2nd of March 2015, Vincent began what was to be a five-week relief position at Leeton High School. The position was planned to end on the last day of term, but it was extended. Vincent had earlier had his roles and responsibilities explained to him on the 27th of February, when he was also given the keys to the school. His hours were 3.30am until 8.30am and then 3pm until 6pm on weekdays. He was not to attend outside those hours except by arrangement and he was only to be in areas associated with his cleaning duties. Now it didn't take long before Vincent began acting outside the terms of his employment. He somehow obtained alarm access codes despite the school's policy of not providing them to casual employees. He was regularly seen at the school outside of his work hours and in areas not associated with his employment. He was seen at the school when children were on breaks from lessons and in and around the girls' toilets, including when they were occupied. I mean, this is starting to be creepy shit. On Tuesday the 7th of April, police who were investigating the disappearance of Stephanie Scott were aware that Vincent's vehicle had been seen constantly at the school over the Easter weekend, so they went to his home to speak with him. Now, his vehicle was a ute, or a small truck as you call them in the USA. 
Vincent confirmed he'd been at the school. He said, cleaning the bins and stuff. He denied having seen Stephanie. Now, he called out to police as they were leaving, and he said, hey, good luck with the search. At this stage, Stephanie had been missing for three days. No activity on her phone, social media or bank accounts. And Aaron was freaking out. The story was now nationwide and people were split between she's got cold feet and run off or she's had some sort of misadventure. On the morning of Wednesday the 8th of April, a detective attended Vincent's home but he wasn't there. At about 11am, Vincent attended Leeton Police Station and provided a statement regarding his movements on Easter Sunday. He said that he'd been cleaning all weekend but hadn't seen anyone at the school other than some people roller skating. He also claimed to have gone to the Golden Apple supermarket in Leeton that day but police inquiries later on revealed he was lying as a supermarket didn't open on Easter Sunday. Now they knew that Vincent had lied to them, they went back to his house at about 6pm to ask whether he would attend the police station for an interview. They were also seeking permission to search the house. Now, Vincent wasn't home, but his mum gave consent for police to conduct a walkthrough of the premises. Police observed fresh tyre tracks leading from the front of the house into the rear yard towards a shed. The tyre impressions were left by a vehicle with a smaller wheelbase than that of Vincent's ute. A used condom was found on the ground in that area and nearby was some yellow tape. In Vincent's bedroom, police found a set of keys matching the description of the school keys given to Stephanie on Easter Sunday. An empty condom wrapper and condoms still in their wrappers were also found. Police declared the premises a crime scene. Vincent arrived home and was approached by police. Detective Milne said, Have you been at work? Vincent replied, No, I've been out taking photographs. Police saw his camera on the front seat of the car. They also observed large MDF boards in the rear of the ute with what appeared to be a blood smear. Vincent's vehicle was seized and he agreed to accompany police to the station. Now, Police turned on the camera and viewed the first image which displayed a burnt, seemingly female corpse in bushland. Now when the camera was further examined at the police station, it revealed a further photograph of the same burnt corpse. There was a substance in the in a number of places on the strap of the camera which matched the appearance of a substance on the corpse. Vincent denied the photographs were of Stephanie. He said that he downloaded them from the internet from a horror movie because he thought they were funny. Police asked Vincent about a number of fresh-looking scratch marks on his face and arms. He said he'd bumped his head and had run into a tree branch about a week before. A forensic examination was undertaken on Vincent's ute. Smears on the MDF boards tested positive for human blood. Also located in the vehicle was a GPS navigation device, which had recent locations including Boundary Road, a gravel road from which Kokopara National Park can be accessed. A used condom was found next to where he had parked his ute in the backyard 
And in a cupboard in Vincent's bedroom, police found a bottle of lube, a condom box containing two unopened condoms and a set of handcuffs. A knife was also located next to the ute. A red bra was also found. Now, all these items would be sent for forensic examination and all DNA tests would eventually come back as matching Stephanie's profile. Now, Vincent was given the opportunity to speak with a solicitor and subsequently denied to be interviewed. He consented to a number of forensic procedures, including the examination, photographing and measuring of his injuries and the taking of fingernail scrapings and a saliva sample for DNA. He was placed under arrest for the murder of Stephanie Scott. Now, on the Thursday, the 9th of April, Stephanie's car was found in Pike Road, Stanbridge, and that's about a 12-minute drive or a two-and-a-half-hour walk from Leeton. Forensic testing revealed human blood in the boot and on the external bumper bar. On Friday, the 10th of April, the day before Stephanie and Aaron were supposed to get married, her burnt remains were located on the edge of Kokopara National Park in the late afternoon. Police soon realised that the burnt corpse matched the images on Vincent's camera. A post-mortem examination was conducted by Dr. Rianne Van Vuren, a forensic pathologist, on the 13th of April 2015. Dr. Van Vuren said that the direct cause of death was blunt force head trauma. Bruises were detected mostly on the right side of the face. There was a small laceration on the right eyebrow and there was a nasal fracture and a blowout fracture of the right eye. There were two stab wounds on the right side of the neck, reaching to the front of the fourth cervical vertebra. The right internal jugular vein was disrupted. There was no associated hemorrhage in the track, but hemorrhaging was seen in the layers of the skin and in between the muscles in the two wounds. There was internal bleeding on and within the brain. So basically... Vincent bashed her to death and stabbed her in the neck to make sure she was dead. On Saturday the 11th of April, Vincent spoke with corrective services officers at Juni Correctional Centre and asked to speak with a police officer in charge of the investigation. Police attended and an interview was conducted in which Vincent made admissions to the murder. He was further interviewed on the 21st of April. So, I have 13 minutes of interviews which I can play here, but to see how matter-of-fact he answers the investigators and how absolutely devoid of any remorse he has, I suggest you look at the video version which I will put up on my YouTube channel. Now, we'll go over what did happen and how his twin brother Marcus, who lived in South Australia, got involved. So, Vincent was at the school for most of the Easter weekend, even though he'd been told he couldn't be there out of his required work hours. The deputy principal saw his car there on Good Friday, but did nothing about it. Now, Vincent told police he just wanted to work because he was bored and that he was emptying bins and hosing them out. On the Saturday, he attended the school to clean out the multi-purpose centre. Now, on Sunday, April the 5th, 
He turned up at the school at around 7.30am. He disarmed the administration block alarm at 9.03am. Now, as he was a casual employee, he shouldn't have had the access codes to any of the alarms. So either he found a list of them or watched staff punch in the codes. Now, Stephanie went to the home of another teacher, Monique Hardy, at around 11am to get the school keys. Now, Monique went with Stephanie to the school to show her how to get in. Now, Stephanie went to the English teacher's staff room, which was locked but not alarmed. Now, Vincent first saw her there when she was in the staff room working on her computer. He would later tell police that he had no idea that she would be there that day and that he had never met her before. He said that when he saw her, a feeling came over him. Now, he described it just like this. Just that I had to kill her. I wasn't angry or anything, basically emotionless. Just that I had to kill her. He then waited for Stephanie to leave. Now, this would be found to be not 100% correct because when police conducted a forensic search of Vincent's phone and computer, they would go through his browser history. The search histories from Vincent's phone and computer revealed that he regularly searched in relation to violent rape, violent sex, hardcore pornography and murder. He also conducted searches in relation to necrophilia, and necro-rape. Example of searches conducted by Vincent on 21st of February 2015 included bride rape, bride kidnapping, virgin bride brutally raped by drunk man, rape videos, and Muslim man rapes child bride until she dies. Immediately following those searches was a rape porn video titled Japanese teachers, clothes cut off, and gang rape by students. The bride searches on that date occurred while Vincent was already working casually at Leeton High School. They were also conducted very shortly before he began his five-week relief position there. There was a prior bride search on the 8th of December 2014. So it looks like he had some sort of bride rape fetish And it was very well known amongst the staff and students of Leeton High School that Stephanie was getting married, even if he said he didn't know Stephanie or hadn't spoken to her. It's pretty obvious that in his day-to-day employment at the school, he would have seen Stephanie and he would have known that she was getting married. This is the reason he wasn't supposed to be at the school during school hours, He was supposed to only be there before school started and after it finished. They didn't want him to be able to interact with staff and students, but it seems when he was there, when he shouldn't have been, that no action was taken for fuck's sake. So far, there are two security issues. He's at the school when he shouldn't be, and he has the alarm access codes. Not to mention the deputy principal saw him at the school on the weekend. Now this is what happens when people are the weak link in the security chain. Anyway, police also found that Vincent was an account holder at a security company that supplies handcuffs, battens, knives and the like. On the 10th of October 2014, 
he'd ordered handcuffs and a half sword. On Easter Saturday, he ordered another knife and more handcuffs. He also attempted to purchase leg cuffs. He told police that he just wanted them. He also conducted a number of Google searches in the late afternoon. Now, the search terms included widowmaker, widow knives, sharpest puncture knives, sharpest knife tips, sharpest, sharpest knife you can buy, best piercing knives, and serial killer knives. Vincent also ordered various sex toys from an internet provider. Now, I don't know if it was a flashlight or what, but you can start to see the idea on what his plans were. Police would ask Vincent on what he'd done with Stephanie's rings. Now, she always wore two rings. One was given to her as a university graduation gift by her mother. The other was her engagement ring. Now, Vincent told police that he remembered taking the rings off Stephanie at the school. He said he would have chucked it out somewhere. It would be in a bin somewhere, but he had no idea where. In fact, he posted the rings and Stephanie's driver's license to his twin brother Marcus on the morning of the 8th of April. Now, we'll get to this Marcus character a little later. So let's go back to Easter Sunday, the 5th of April. Stephanie is busy in the staff room preparing everything for the relief teacher for when she goes on her honeymoon. Vincent has seen her and he would go home to get his rape and murder kit, which included a knife, handcuffs and condoms. Then he returned to the school. He would then go to a storage room and unlock the door. Stephanie finished the preparation work she'd been doing. She packed up and started to leave. After leaving the administration block, Stephanie walked along an enclosed corridor towards the locked school gates. Now, Vincent was waiting for her. She saw him and said, I'm going home now. Have a happy Easter. She stopped and attempted to get the keys out of her bag to open the gate. Vincent grabbed her from behind with his right arm over her mouth and his left arm around her middle. Walking backwards, he dragged her along a corridor towards the storage room, which he had previously left unlocked, and he'd left the door open as well. Stephanie struggled and fought back. She scratched Vincent's face and tried to yell as she tried to free herself. She dropped some of her belongings along the way. Now, Vincent claimed that he'd never been in this room before this day. He'd told police that he'd opened it earlier that day because he just wanted to see what was in there. After he dragged Stephanie inside the storage room, he released her. As he turned to close the door, she tried to run out of the room. He pushed her and she fell face down on the floor between some MDF boards and a locker. Vincent put his left arm over Stephanie's throat and started beating her to the face with his right fist 30 or 40 times. She struggled for 40 to 50 seconds before she became unconscious. Vincent placed a condom on his penis and had penile vaginal intercourse with Stephanie. She was still alive at that point in time. As Stephanie lay on the floor, Vincent placed his left hand on her throat. He removed a 40-centimetre knife from his right pocket and stabbed her in what he thought was the cartoid artery. When asked by police why he stabbed Stephanie in the neck, he replied, 
to make sure she was dead. He said that he had the knife in his car and he brought it into the school that day because I think I had to open something up. None of the other cleaners had ever seen Vincent with a knife, nor had any of them needed to use one in the course of their work. Now, after having killed Stephanie, Vincent left her lying where she was while he went home and had lunch. He then returned to the school. Vincent later told police that after stabbing Stephanie, he picked up the knife and went to the cleaning storeroom to clean it. He picked up her belongings, including her car keys, which she dropped as she was being dragged away. Now, at some point after returning to the school, Vincent went out and got Stephanie's car. He drove it into the school grounds to a point near the main buildings. He then carried her body to her car. He put some yellow masking tape on her neck to try and stop the bleeding, and he placed plastic into the boot of the car and put the body on top of it. Vincent obtained a high-pressure cleaner and cleaned up the scene over the next few hours. He then drove Stephanie's car back to his house with a body in the boot or trunk for those in the US, and he walked back to the school to collect his car. He loaded the blood-soaked MDF boards from the storeroom into the back of his ute and drove away. Now, a little later that afternoon, Vincent was seen throwing a laptop into a canal outside of Leeton. Now, this would be found to be Stephanie's laptop. Late that night, Vincent drove Stephanie's car to a location near a service station. Now, he entered the service station on foot and filled a jerry can with petrol. Now, he parked outside the servo. That was to avoid being captured on the CCTV. In the early hours of Monday, the 6th of April, Vincent drove Stephanie's car to Kokopara National Park, and that's about 50 kilometres north of Leeton. He removed her body from the boot of the car and put it on the ground. He said her body was in the fetal position. It was stiff, but he was able to move the joints. And when he put her on the ground... He just straightened her out. He removed all of her clothing, which he said took a fair bit of effort. He had to cut a shirt in order to remove it. He said he did this because he thought her clothing may not burn. Now, Vincent placed the clothes, a sun visor from Stephanie's car, and the plastic from the boot into a backpack. Shortly after 3am, Vincent turned his phone off, having turned it off in Leeton at about 1.15am. He then took six photographs. The first three are too dark to show anything, but the last three are of Stephanie, naked and with a towel covering her head. The body is very clean, with no observable blood on it. The wound on her neck is clearly visible and is also clean. Vincent put branches on the body along with 20 litres of petrol before setting it alight. Now, most of the fuel was placed in the area between the upper thighs and lower rib cage. An expert later noted that most of the damage was to the lower torso and groin area with less damage to the head and chest and relatively minimal damage to the feet. And it looked like he was attempting to destroy evidence of the sexual element of his crime. Vincent then drove Stephanie's car back to his home where he removed the jerry can and boot liner. He changed his clothing, he then drove back out of Leeton, abandoned the car in Pike Road, Stanbridge and walked back into town. 
Vincent later began disposing of Stephanie's property, which he'd stored in the wardrobe in his bedroom. He drove around in his ute and dumped her belongings in public garbage bins, including on the main street in Leeton. Her clothes were not found, but police recovered the car sun visor and other items in a bin in Griffith. Now also, as I mentioned earlier, he posted Stephanie's rings and driver's licence to his twin brother Marcus in South Australia. Now when investigators found out that Vincent had a twin, they got the local South Australian police to go and interview him. He gave a statement which really didn't say much other than his brother had called him a couple of times over the weekend, and that was pretty much that. Until a recorded telephone call made by Vincent to Marcus started to shed a bit more light on what they were actually talking about on the phone and in deleted text messages. On the 26th of May 2015, Vincent called Marcus from the Metropolitan Remand and Reception Centre at Silverwater. Now the conversation included the following. Vincent said, So what did you do with the stuff I sent you? Marcus replied, It's in my room. Oh, oh, you mean the envelope? Vincent, yeah. Marcus, exactly what you told me to do. Vincent, did you get a fair bit for it? Marcus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Vincent, that's good. And then Marcus, hmm, yeah, yeah. Now, two days later, investigators found messages exchanged on the morning of Wednesday, the 8th of April, which showed that Marcus was aware that his brother was going to send him an envelope. Now, Vincent wrote, I'm going to send you an envelope. Keep it safe for me. And can you let me know when you receive the envelope? Police returned to Marcus's home on the 30th of May in order to speak with him at the request of New South Wales Police. They asked if he had received an envelope containing jewellery from his brother. He said he'd not received anything from him since the previous Christmas. Marcus was arrested at his home by South Australian Police on the 10th of June 2015. Police also seized a camera, a business card for the Adelaide Exchange Jewellery Store, and his mobile phone. He was extradited to New South Wales. The examination of his phone revealed that he'd accessed a news article on 8.48am on Thursday the 9th of April titled Bride-to-be Stephanie Scott missing from Leeton, New South Wales, one week before her wedding. So he knew what was going on then. On Tuesday the 14th of April, Marcus googled selling jewellery in Adelaide. On Monday the 4th of May, he researched the price of diamond engagement rings and where and how to sell them. On Saturday the 9th of May, he went to the Adelaide Exchange Jewellery Store in Modbury, South Australia, where he sold two rings belonging to Stephanie that had been sent to him by Vincent. They were her engagement ring and the ring given to her by her mother because of a graduation. He was paid, now get this, $705. Now sadly, these two rings were later scrapped. 705 bucks. You can imagine how much Aaron paid for that engagement ring. It's just disgusting. So Marcus would be done for accessory after the fact to murder, selling Stephanie's rings, destroying her driver's license and lying to police. He would be convicted and sentenced to imprisonment for a fixed term of one year and three months. 
Now, he did get off lightly because the accessory after the fact to murder was seen as being in the lower range of seriousness as he was the brother. He wasn't really there on the night. He got sent some rings. He did know what had happened eventually and he did lie to police. But mm, still, selling a rings and for them to be scrapped... That, that must have been such another heartbreak for Aaron and Stephanie's mum. I mean, like I said, getting $705 for him for fuck's sake. Now, there are a few other disturbing things that police would find out about this Vincent character. I think it's fair to say he had been stalking Stephanie, and it would be found that he was stalking at least three other females. Soon after he moved in his home in Maiden Avenue on 4th of March 2014, he began covertly photographing and stalking a young girl in the neighbourhood, which we'll call Joanne, because the names of all these three women have been changed by the court. Anyway, Joanne was then a student at Leeton Public School. She was 12 years old in 2015. Now, police found numerous surveillance-type photographs of Joanne on Vincent's camera. There was video footage and a further large number of photographs on his computer. In total, there were 1,805 images of Joanne, many showing her in school uniform from the waist down. There are also numerous photographs of other schoolgirls and adult females who were passing by the house. There were also numerous images of bestiality and pictures of other young girls. Now, police also seized an exercise book with Vincent's name on the front cover. And inside the back cover, in his notes, he repeatedly referred to Joanne as a slut. The book contains extensive notes relating to surveillance conducted on her. And this included time she left the house for ballet and school and when she returned. It also included when the house was empty, and when she was home alone. Included is an entry that says, Home alone, 1540. Time enough to abduct. Fuck's sake! There are drawings including females, a car, a gun, and a sword. There is an image of a female head with a knife striking it. There are notes of the registration numbers of cars belonging to Johan's father and grandfather. Oh my God. Another page contains a list of words including a number of stupefying drugs including Valium, chloroform, nitrous oxide and rohypnol. Now Vincent also had a laminated photo of a school dance group that included Joanne. Now, he'd taken that off the school notice board because it included her in it. In his first police interview, Vincent described his stalking of Joanne as a baseless obsession. He stated that he wanted to abduct Joanne, but managed to control that urge. He went on to say that if he had abducted her, he probably would have killed her. The second female, we'll call Gillian, was a young woman who worked in a supermarket in Leeton. Gillian noticed Vincent attending the store with his mother on a weekly basis in the four to five months prior to the murder, but he came alone in the weeks before. On the 24th of March 2015, Vincent approached Gillian and engaged her in general conversation. He did the same on the 27th of March. Police found on his computer that he'd googled her 
on the 30th of March 2015. On the 31st of March, Gillian arrived for work about five minutes before the supermarket was due to open. She saw Vincent sitting in the car park in his ute, which was parked near where the staff parked their cars, well away from the store entrance. Gillian parked her car and waited for two male co-workers to approach her car before she got out and walked into the store with them. Police later located photos he'd taken of that time of Gillian's car in the car park. Police also found that he carried out a number of RTA, and that's our Roads and Traffic Authority, he carried out RTA internet searches in an effort to trace the ownership details of Gillian's car. Now, the third female, we'll call Jennifer, was a 28-year-old teacher at Leeton High School. She ordinarily parked a car in the top car park at the school. She was frequently required to work back late, and on occasion her car would be the last one left in the car park. Often, when she went back to her car, Vincent was nearby. Now, Jennifer would sometimes say hello, and he would say hello back. Now, police found a photograph of Jennifer's car on his phone. The photograph was taken at 4.57pm on the 27th of March 2015 while the car was parked in the Leeton High School car park. Wow, what a fucking dangerous, sick, murderous, raping fuckwit. Vincent would plead guilty to the murder of Stephanie Claire Scott. He also pleaded guilty to having sexual intercourse with her without her consent knowing that she was not consenting in circumstances of aggravation, namely that he deprived her of her liberty. Now the judge would say, I'm satisfied that this is a case of murder that clearly falls within the worst category. It does so to the extent that subjective matters that might ordinarily call for amelioration of the sentencing response should be set aside. I'm satisfied beyond any doubt that the offender's culpability is so extreme that the community interest in retribution, punishment, community protection and deterrence can be met with only one response. So, Vincent would be convicted of the aggravated sexual assault and murder of Stephanie Claire Scott. For the aggravated sexual assault, he was sentenced to imprisonment for 15 years. There was no non-parole set for that offence because of the murder charge. He was sentenced to life. Now let's hope this prick never gets out. How the family and friends get over a loss like this is beyond me. Stephanie was loved by all, not only her close friends, family and fiancé, but by the whole community. At her memorial, everyone released yellow balloons because it was her favourite colour. At the site where Stephanie's body was found in Kokopara National Park, a garden has been created in her memory. Now sadly, Stephanie's father, Robert Scott, was killed on the 1st of November 2016 while working on their family farm when a tree fell on him. Well, Islanders, what do you think? I mean, geez, this guy was an unexploded bomb ready to go off at any moment. The other three women that he stalked, well, one was actually just a very young girl. They must have nightmares over this. Now, as this episode is getting quite long already, I will put the 13 minutes of the two police interviews on my YouTube version so you can see the matter-of-fact way he describes what he did. He has no remorse, no emotion. 
He had the opportunity to kill that day and he went home and got his rape murder kit and just did it. I'm sure, and I think the judge was sure as well, that if he hadn't been caught so quickly, he would have killed again. I mean, he was already researching new knives and handcuffs after he killed Stephanie, so he's obviously going to do it again for sure. Let's hope he's never released. So that's the end of the show. Another, like I said, another one. It's almost like deja vu listening to some of these cases. And I know there's many, many, many more out there and around the world. Exactly the same. Being the end of the show, we've got the Patreon shout outs. And thanks to all my past, present and new patrons, your financial support really, really does make a difference. As True Crime Island is commercial free for all. And this week we've got Amber Mackey who's upgraded her support. Thank you so much. It's very much appreciated. To go onto the Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash true crime island. If you don't like the monthly thing, you can also do a one-off donation to PayPal as Dan Robinson did we have this week. G'day, Dan. We've had a few chats on Messenger. And Peter Praha did so generously. It really is appreciated. PayPal link is donate.truecrimeisland.com or paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. Now, please don't feel obliged. Support yourself before you support the island. Like I said, we're not behind a paywall or anything here at the island. It's free for everybody. I have merch at Threadless and Redbubble now. Go to Redbubble and search for True Crime Island, but I do have a link to Redbubble on my YouTube channel. There are links also to other stuff on the YouTube channel. Just search for True Crime Island and feel free free to like, subscribe and comment. Hit the little bell for notifications. I usually release the YouTube version the day after the audio version. It does have other things like it will have videos and photos on there as well. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing, also by sharing it with your friends and family. That's either version. All the links, including social media, are on my website, truecrimeisland.com. And if you want to contact me, the best way is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. Okay, I have a promo tonight for Prash's Murder Map. It's a new true crime podcast which came out in April this year, examining cases from around the world in an immersive experience that includes music and voiceovers. The host, Prash, doesn't just tell the story, but he tries to analyse the crime and explain why they happened. You'll find it wherever you get your podcast, so I'll stick that at the end of the show. That's about it. So... I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to me rage on and on again about True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boombagalunga. Hey everyone, this is Prash, host of Prash's Murder Map. Pack your passport and jump on a plane, because I'd like to take you on a journey 
to investigate some of the most heinous, macabre and enigmatic murders across the globe and throughout history. We'll look at forensics, psychology and more as we dissect solved and unsolved cases like Australia's Frankston Killer and a murderous family on the American frontier. If you'd like to give my podcast a try, you can find me on all major podcast platforms and YouTube. Hope to see you soon.